Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 6. The word of the Lord. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the letter of James. James chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. We'll be reading to verse 20 this evening. The word of our God. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning at verse 1, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. Imagine being in the court of Pharaoh in the days of Moses. Pharaoh is the godlike ruler over the greatest kingdom on the face of the earth. Everywhere you look, you see all the trappings of power and just astonishing wealth. And then one day, in walks this guy who's been taking care of some sheep in Midian. And he says the most preposterous thing to Pharaoh in the name of a foreign god. Apparently this foreign god was saying, Israel is my son, my firstborn son, let my people go. I mean, who does this Moses think that he is? 
You know, and after all, if this God is so powerful, what are his people doing as slaves in Egypt anyway? Uh, You might have laughed, or you might have been torn, wondering whether Pharaoh was going to amuse himself a bit, toying with this guy, or is he was just going to crush this Moses like he was a bug? Who in the world did this nobody think that he was? Well, in fact, Moses had come to know that he was a nobody. But he also knows that he has been called and sent by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created everything that exists and therefore is absolutely in charge of everything that exists. Through mighty signs and an outstretched hand, Yahweh would demonstrate that he was the true and living God. That despite all of Pharaoh's pretenses to be in charge, in spite of all the Egyptian gods that they pretended to be in charge, that Yahweh and Yahweh alone was truly in charge. And Almighty God would demonstrate that he was the true and living God through devastating plagues, and he would compel Pharaoh to let his people go. Tonight we come to a portion of God's word that addresses Elijah, a prophet who is like unto Moses, bursting onto the scene. Uh, It's a most dramatic shift in the book of 1 Kings. Uh, The titles actually give away what the books are about. When you read 1 and 2 Kings, they're primarily royal histories in Israel. They focus upon the kings and those things that are around the kings. But tonight we come to a remarkable counterforce in Israel. Prophets. The prophet Elijah and then the prophet Elisha, who will dramatically bring God's word to bear upon his people to remind the people that Israel's kings were not the ultimate king, but Almighty God was the one who was truly in charge. Just as Moses would stand before Pharaoh to declare that Yahweh rather than Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods were really in charge, Elijah crashes into Ahab's kingdom to speak on behalf of Israel's true king and the world's true Lord. Sadly, Ahab had become every bit as pagan as Pharaoh of old. As we saw last week, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. What made Ahab so wicked? For him walking in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that was a trifling thing. To lead Israel to worship the true God in a false way, that that didn't even get Ahab started. Ahab turned away from the living God to worship Baal. And in fact, he went full pagan. He, He built a temple in Samaria to Baal, but he also became a polytheist erecting the Asherah there in Samaria as well to worship the female side of the pagan deities. In terms of kings, Ahab was as bad as it gets. On the other hand, there's Elijah. Elijah was true to his name. We're going to see that in just a moment. We'll certainly see that if you just keep reading through 1 Kings. 
Elijah's name means, my God is Yahweh. And Elijah was devoted to Yahweh and to the glory of the true God of Israel. Indeed, Elijah hates the idolatry of Baal worship every bit as much as Jezebel hates the strict monotheism of the Torah. The battle lines are clearly being drawn. Nevertheless, we need to step back here because the drama of the story could suck us in in a way that we miss the main conflict. The battle here is not ultimately between Jezebel or Ahab and Elijah. The battle that is going on is ultimately twofold. It's the battle of the Lord God with his wayward king, Ahab, and it is the confrontation that the Lord is bringing to Elijah with his own wayward people who have followed Ahab into Baal worship. Uh, Why would the Israelites be tempted to go after Baal? Well, if you were with us last week, one of the things I pointed out was is Israel was very prosperous under Ahab. And and see, Baal was the Canaanite god that promised fertility, uh, that promised crop growth, that promised wealth. Uh, That's the way most pagan gods work, by the way. The idea of pagan religion is very quid pro quo. If you do something for this pagan god, that pagan god's going to make you wealthier or maybe give you good health. And it seemed that it was coming to pass under Ahab's reign. And it isn't as though Yahweh worship had been completely eradicated in Israel. Um, Under Ahab, it was just fine to worship Yahweh as long as he was one of the gods, right? Yahweh was fine with Baal, with Yom, with the Asherah. What Ahab and Jezebel were opposed to was Yahweh alone. And you all understand that in our own day. Your neighbors who are not Christians, who are upset with Christianity, are not upset that you believe in Jesus. They are not upset that you believe that Jesus is a way to God. But if you say simply what Jesus himself says, that he is the way to God, that no one comes to the Father except through him, well, now you are a narrow-minded bigot. That's what was going on back here in ancient Israel as well. It was okay for people to continue worshiping Yahweh, but we're really going to celebrate Baal and the Canaanites. And think about this in very practical terms. A lot of people look at religion as a way of getting ahead in this world. And Baal promises to make you healthy and wealthy. And why put all your eggs in one basket, right? Can't we diversify a bit here? You know, we'll worship, Yah- we'll worship Yahweh, we'll worship Baal, we'll worship the Asherah, and maybe at least one of them will help us get ahead in this world, right? Why don't you cover all your bases and hedge your bets? Well, this raises an obvious question for us. Are we also seeking well-being and prosperity, anything that amounts to a good life, in the wrong places? I mean, sure, we're not going to worship Baal, but are there ways in which we are trusting partly in the Lord and partly in very worldly things to produce wealth and health, happiness, and meaning in our lives? 
That's a very serious question for us to consider. Are we hedging our bets, or are we all in on trusting and following Jesus? Let me ask you that again. Not simply are we, but are you? Are you hedging your bets, or are you all in on following Jesus? You know what the technical term for hedging your bets in religion is? It's polytheism. That's exactly what it is. And Jesus is saying you have no reason to hedge your bets. And in fact, it's a wicked thing for you to do. See, rather than giving us a small but obscure piece of ancient Israel's history, tonight's passage confronts us with a probing question. Is my loyalty to Jesus Christ undivided? Or am I simply throwing a little bit in Jesus' direction, hoping that it's enough that he'll bless me, while I'm also leaning upon and putting my trust in worldly things and worldly ways. Our faithfulness to the Lord will in fact be renewed if we grasp through tonight's passage how the Lord himself is always perfectly faithful to his own character and therefore to his own promises. Uh, We're going to look at this passage this evening under three main headings. First, the Lord gives what he has promised. Second, the Lord promises what he will give. And third, the Lord provides for his faithful remnant. Let me give those to you again. The Lord gives what he has promised. The Lord promises what he will give. And the Lord provides for his faithful remnant. We begin with the truth that the Lord gives what he has promised. Look at verse 1 with me. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Now, I should say a bit about the background of Elijah. He's just burst onto the scene here. But actually, the really important thing to know about Elijah's background is, first, it's obscure, and second, it is utterly unimpressive. Elijah is not an important person when God calls him. Uh, When we come to the prophet Elisha, we're going to see that he comes from an important and affluent family. He is Elisha, son of Shaphat whose family had many servants and many oxen. Elijah's father is not even named. And there's a detail in the Hebrew text, but it's actually obscured in most English translations, but Elijah is a sojourner in Gilead. We don't even know where Tishbe is for sure, but Gilead's this unimportant region on the other side of the Jordan. And Elijah's not even a permanent resident there, he's a sojourner. Uh, That means that as Elijah went through life, he couldn't rely on his blood relatives to take care of him. He he was at uh, the mercy, to some degree, of the kindness of those who he had no claim upon. As a temporary resident, Elijah almost certainly was without wealth, and he was certainly without status. Elijah was dependent upon the kindness of people 
who were not his blood relatives. Beloved, when the Lord called Elijah to be his spokesman, the Lord was calling a nobody. He was calling a nobody that it might be clear, but the power was not in the clay pot, but the power was in the word of the Lord that Elijah would be declaring. So what is it that Elijah says? As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Elijah declares three things. I think it will be helpful if we take them in reverse order. First, Elijah declares there's going to be a drought. Now, we have to step away here from living in the modern world with reservoirs and pipes and all sorts of things in North America, where, frankly, in North America, we often, in many parts of the country anyway, have a lot of access to water. We need to realize that in the ancient Near East, a drought that was going to persist was about as bad as it could possibly get. I mean, putting it simply, no water, no crops, right? No crops, the animals die, and eventually the people die too. Right? You watch your wealth go away, it withers, and then you yourself are at threat of dying. should mention here that this threat is a very real physical threat, but it also cuts to the heart of Baalism, because Baal supposedly is the God who sends rain. And so if the Lord delivers on this promise to bring a drought, he's demonstrating that Baal is not in charge. He's in charge instead. And Elijah declares that not only won't there be rain, there won't even be any dew. In many ways, this is a death sentence. And as we're going to see in the coming weeks, that this Chapter 17 of 1 Kings is actually very much about life and death and the fact that it is Yahweh who controls both. And in the process, Baal is going to be unmasked as being powerless by the word of the living God. Now, on the one hand, Elijah simply appears out of the blue and announces this astonishing thing. On the other hand, the drought and the famine were entirely what we should have expected if we simply remember that the Lord is faithful to his own promises. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the Lord had given this word through the prophet Moses. The Lord had declared, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under your feet shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. That is what the Lord has promised, and the Lord is faithful to his promises, whether those are promises to bless, he's faithful to those, but he's faithful to his promises to bring judgment as well. In ancient Israel, the primary agricultural season is what we think of as the winter, really fall through spring. So the early rains are actually rains that take place in the fall and they soften the earth. If you don't have the early rains, you can't even plow. 
in that very hot environment, the soil really does become hard like iron. You can't even turn it, particularly with a wooden plow, but even with an iron one. And unless you get the latter rains that come in the spring, the crops don't have the nourishment that they need in order to grow and flourish and produce abundance. A drought will bring about judgment and death. If these rains did not come, first the crops, then the animals, and finally the people would all die. But that's what God had promised them. The Lord had said, if you turn away from me and you rebel against me, if you go after the pagan gods, this is precisely what I am going to do. Phil Riken puts it well. The judgments of Scripture are not idle threats. If God says he will bring down the proud, God will bring down the proud. If the Lord says he will punish sin and reserve fires of judgment for everyone who rebels against him, we should take him at his word. The Lord keeps his promises, including his word of judgment. Now, because of Israel's apostasy, neither the early nor the latter rains would fall. Uh, In one sense, this is a small historical pointer, devastating for them, but for us it's a small pointer in a much bigger uh, array of pointers that makes clear that it is a fearful thing to fall as an adversary into the hands of the living God. Well, that was Elijah's claim, but if you were hanging around and with Ahab, what would you have thought? I mean, here's this entirely unimpressive guy with no reputation, no, no, no supporters coming with him. I mean, you would have been thinking, who in the world does this guy think he is to stand before the king of Israel and declare this sort of judgment? Who is this nobody to speak to our king like that? Yet with just a few words, Elijah has given the king good reason to believe that the word in his mouth is truth. The twofold basis for Elijah's bold claim is in fact important for us to grasp. Why is Elijah so confident that he is willing to stand before King Ahab and declare judgment upon him and his kingdom straight to his face? Elijah says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. By the way, I I think if you take this seriously, anyone took it seriously back then, and we don't know that Ahab did, uh, the word years would have been terrifying. Ahab was not pronouncing a, a shortage of rain for the next three or four weeks. He's talking about a very staggeringly long period of time. Well, what is Elijah saying? First, the Lord whom Elijah serves is the living God. He's not a figment of the religious imaginations like Baal and Asherah and Yam and so on, or frankly like the sort of gods that people trust in our own day, that they lean on these these reeds that cannot possibly hold them up because they want to be held up and they're trusting in vain things. The living God is not like that. 
Since the Lord has all power in heaven and earth, there is no reason for Elijah to be afraid so long as he is carrying out the Lord's will. Now let me say that applies to you too. This is not just for Elijah. The man or woman, the boy or girl, who bows the knee before King Jesus can stand before the kings and presidents of this world with confidence that God is for them. It's actually what true humility is. The humility that leads us to bow our knee before King Jesus gives us the courage to stand before the most powerful people in our own day. Second, Elijah says of the Lord that he is the God before whom I stand. See, standing in the counsel of God is actually the marker of being a prophet. Prophets didn't just wing it. They didn't say, I got a clever message I want to tell people. The whole idea of a prophet is God had brought this, this man, this woman, into his own counsel so he knew exactly what God wanted to say. And because he knew it was God's will and God's words, he could say it with boldness. You know, when we pray, if we pray in accordance with God's will, God always does it. The problem is we don't always know what God's will is on many detailed aspects of life. But if you know what God wants you to say and what to do, as Elijah here does, he actually has a confidence to pray for really an astonishing thing, as James will tell us. He prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. But Elijah could stand before the king knowing that when he leaves and prays fervently for the rain to stop, that God would answer with a resounding yes. Now, of course, the fact that someone claims to speak for the living God, that's what Elijah's doing. The fact that someone claims to speak for the living God does not make it true. But what is unshakably true is that Ahab and all of Israel also had the Torah of Moses. They already had God's word, and God's word had promised this very judgment if Israel would ever do what they are presently doing. And therefore, they had every reason to take this threat of judgment seriously. God is faithful. God had promised. God would fulfill his promise. When Elijah, on behalf of God, threatens to bring about the very judgments which the Lord had promised in his covenant with Israel, both Ahab and the people were obligated to take those words seriously and to turn from their wicked ways. Uh, I should note this applies to us as well. We, we talked about this last week. God is faithful. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So the first thing for us to grasp in tonight's passage is that the Lord fulfills his promises, whether they are promised blessings or they are promises of judgment, on his enemies. The steadfast faithfulness of the Lord should, in fact, bring us great comfort as his people. In this world, we will have many disappointments, but the Lord will never let us down. Indeed, the word of our God will endure forever. Having put his life on the line, we should realize, by the way, this is not like um, going to a 
political rally today and speaking against the candidate who's running for president or the current president who's running for re-election. Uh, going and announcing judgments in the face of kings in the ancient world was a rather risky business. And Elijah, having put in his life on the line, receives a fresh word from the Lord. The Lord here, in verses 2 through 4, now promises what he's going to give to Elijah. Look at verses 2 through 4 with me. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. As Walter Meyer points out, God knew that when Elijah's prophecy reached the ears of Jezebel, I'd say nothing of Ahab, but certainly when they reached the ears of Jezebel, she would be filled with murderous rage and would attempt to capture and kill Elijah, and that she would stir up her husband Ahab to do the same. So God told Elijah to flee from this place and hide in the Wadi Cherith, where God would provide for his prophet. And I do think that that's right. And in this picture, we see a beautiful, beautiful portrait of the Lord protecting his faithful remnant. We do see that. But I think there's something else going on here as well. Sending Elijah into hiding was designed to protect the prophet, certainly. But was it not also a judgment on Ahab and on Israel? See, Ahab was the king, but Elijah was the source of God's word. Was not God saying, I'm not only going to send a famine on the land for bread, but I am going to send a famine into the land for the hearing of the word of God? And remember, Elijah has said, apart from my word, it is not going to rain again. Israel would come to desperately know how much they needed to hear God's word, and yet God was holding it back from them because they didn't want to put it into practice. Yet just as the Lord had once made a distinction between the Egyptians and his own people who dwelt in Goshen, the Lord here is making a distinction between his unfaithful people and the remnant, the faithful remnant. Now, it is true that Elijah is not alone. He is not the only believer left in, left in Israel. But in a very real sense, Elijah, with his genuine zeal for the Lord, represents that tiny, minuscule, faithful remnant. And God says, I'm going to make a distinction between all the people of the land who are against me and Elijah, my prophet. They may go without water and food, but Elijah, I'm going to provide for you. I'm giving you fresh water from the brook Cherith, and I'm going to give you meat in a really, really surprising way. I'm going to have ravens bring you meat in the morning, feed you breakfast, and I'm going to have the ravens bring you meat again at night. It is kind of interesting to me that the Lord does not send Elijah home back across the Jordan. The Lord sends Elijah to places and people whom he has probably never seen before. Elijah will not be able to trust in relationships. He will not be able to trust in his experiences and things he already knows. 
He will be entirely dependent upon the Lord, and the Lord is committed to demonstrating that he is all that Elijah will ever need. But drought will quickly bring famine, but the Lord tells Elijah that he will provide him with both food and water. As I say, the delivery system might have been most unusual. First century Pharisees might have been freaked out by this because it turns out that ravens are considered unclean. Uh, But they're considered unclean to eat. There was nothing wrong with the ravens actually bringing him meat. And in the ancient Near East, Palestine, the idea of eating meat twice a day, uh, that would have been an extraordinary lavish diet, perhaps the only thing that a king would eat that sort of food. Most Israelites would only eat meat sporadically, certainly not every day and certainly not twice a day. Nevertheless, the abundant provision of the food is not, in fact, the main point. Rather, the Lord is demonstrating his complete control over nature by, on the one hand, withholding the rain, and by, on the other hand, showing that even the birds of the air obey his commands. The Lord tells Elijah that he will provide him with both water and food, and Elijah fully believes the word of the Lord. The Lord promises what he will provide, then he provides what he has promised. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. So Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So what is it that distinguishes the faithful remnant from the unbelievers in Israel? Faith. How can we know that the remnant has faith? Not just back then, but in our own day. Faith is what distinguishes the people of God, but how can we know that the people of God have faith? Obedience. Elijah was immediately and completely obedient. Now the words here in this text are easy to say, but they're vital for us to grasp. He went and did according to the word of the Lord. Now, you know, of course, God is not calling you to have perfect obedience. Well, he is calling that perfect obedience all the time, but that is not a requirement of being one of his children, right? You're not going to be perfect in this life. But we need to not kid ourselves that we're somehow trusting the Lord and loving the Lord if we don't do what he tells us to do. As James, the brother of Jesus, warns us, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, uh, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no idle hearer, who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see, Elijah was not an idle hearer of God's word. The Lord brought his word to Elijah, and by faith, Elijah did it. He put it into practice. 
Nevertheless, this passage is not really emphasizing the faithfulness of Elijah. This passage is emphasizing the faithfulness of Elijah's God. The ravens, in fact, brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook just as the Lord had promised. Elijah showed himself to be true to his name. He was, in fact, wholly devoted to Yahweh. More importantly, Yahweh was wholly devoted to Elijah and to each of you. The Lord is devoted to his covenant promises and to all his people. As Phil Riken reminds us, the same God of Elijah is alive today. Rain or shine, God is God. Therefore, those who serve him really are like Elijah because we serve a living God. This brings us to two important applications. First, we ought to ask ourselves, am I undivided my loyalty to my Lord? Or am I hedging my bets? You know, we sometimes sing, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground which raises an obvious question. Why would I plant one foot on the rock and one foot on sinking sand to hedge my bets? Rather than planting both feet firmly in the kingdom of God, knowing that Jesus never fails. Second, the unshakable faithfulness of the Lord gives us every reason to live by faith from beginning to end. You know how faith most expresses itself? You might say obedience, but I think there's actually something that comes even before that. Faith expresses itself in prayer. As we heard in our New Covenant reading this morning, James tells us, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. You realize that when you read through 1 Kings? Remember when God called Elijah, he's a nobody, but he didn't really become a somebody. I mean, he became famous in church history, but he didn't have the power in himself. He remained an earthen vessel all the days of his life. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, the message to us tonight is not that we pray for dramatic things like the rain to stop. God called Elijah to that. He has not called us to do that. The message from tonight's passage is simple. The Lord is calling us to trust him and to love him with all our hearts 
And he is giving us this promise. They that trust him wholly will find him wholly true. May the Lord give us such faith. Amen.